All right, so come on in, grab some notes. Last uh, week, we started working on the Last Supper and John's take on it. Uh, John is kind of interesting because unlike the other three Gospels, he doesn't talk about the institution of communion, sometimes called the Eucharist, um, and instead he spends a lot of time talking about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. He uses that as a concrete analogy for the redeeming grace that Jesus' death is going to provide for the disciples and all believers and also as a model of servant leadership that all believers should practice for other believers. I think one thing we didn't talk about much that it shows us is that God wants to have a personal relationship with every believer. If you think about the imagery of washing someone's feet and then sitting down and having dinner with them. That's very relational. It's very personal. Um, I think that's one emphasis in the evangelical world that evangelicals have exactly right, which is that you can actually know your creator. You can know the creator of the universe. I will say that's not logical, I think logic would tell you that if there is a God big enough to create the universe, that's too big to have a relationship with you. That's way too big to care about what's going on in your life. But the evidence of the Bible says that logic is wrong. The evidence says that God cares about you and if he's big enough to care about the universe he's big enough to take care about of the universe and care about you in a personal way and you can talk to him just like you were sitting down to have dinner with him and I think that's one of the amazing applications that comes out of the last supper and the rest of revelation I think another lesson that comes out of that passage is Judas Judas sits through all that, and then he chooses to go out into the night. And so one of the hard lessons of Judas Iscariot is that you can hang around believers for a long time, even for years, and still choose to walk away. So at some point, everyone has to decide whether they're going to own faith themselves. You have to make a personal choice. And so maybe you grew up in church, maybe your parents made you go to church every week, but at some point you have to decide for yourself whether that's your faith. You have to make that personal commitment. And it is possible, unfortunately, to be exposed to the truth and choose to walk away from it. So that makes evangelism and discipleship all the more urgent that people have the ability to walk away from it. All right, so now we're going to pick up where Judas has made the decision to walk away and put the plot to arrest Jesus into motion. Jesus knows that. So at verse 31 of chapter 13, Jesus says, when he was gone, meaning Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified and God glorified in him. So Jesus views this as another tipping point, another big step forward 
toward the process of his glorification, which he says includes the cross and his death and eventually his resurrection and then exaltation. And if it's kind of interesting um, that he uses the Son of Man here, that comes from Daniel. So go back with me to Daniel for just a second, chapter 7. So we've been kind of following John and Jesus as they play with this idea of glory. And if we look in Daniel chapter 7, we see an image which is, I think, what most of us think of when we think of glory. We're told Daniel has this vision of heaven, and at verse 9, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, His throne was flaming with fire, its wheels were all ablaze, a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him, thousands upon thousands attended him, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, the court was seated, the books were open. So it's an image of God in heaven, and we see how majestic that is. Then skip down to verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. So someone who looks like a human being. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I think that's what we think typically when we hear the phrase glory. We're like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Everyone adoring you, being given authority, and when... Jesus talks about the Son of Man, um, that serves a dual purpose for him. When you talk about the Son of Man, you're referring back to this and this figure that gets this kind of glory, but it can also mean just a guy, someone who's human, just like the rest of us. And Jesus also owns that aspect of the phrase. And While Jesus is going to talk and focus more in the rest of the gospel about how he will ultimately experience what Daniel 7 talks about, what John wants us to realize is that the glory actually begins in an absolute sense before then because glory is not just honor, it's being splendid and displaying the characteristics of God, including his goodness, his mercy, his love, and all that starts with suffering and even death. And so Jesus says, now the Son of Man will be glorified, and by doing that, God will be glorified through his actions. So what he is about to do will glorify God, I think, Jesus doesn't spell it out here, but I think from the rest of the gospel, 
The ways he's going to glorify God the Father include submitting to his will, displaying his attributes to the world, and spiritually rescuing a multitude of people who are going to be able to worship God the Father and have a relationship with him. He says, in turn, if God is glorified by Jesus, God the Father will glorify the Son in himself, and that means in his presence, and will glorify him at once. So Jesus is going to glorify God the Father by submitting to him. In turn, God the Father is going to honor the Son for doing that, just like we read about in Daniel 7. That happens after his exaltation. So we see the Trinity is this incredible cycle of honoring, loving, and submitting to each other. This sort of endless cycle of love and honor functioning in perfect harmony and community. Okay? The Son honors the Father. The Father honors the Son. All right. Questions, comments about that? Okay, now he's got to move on. And he says, my children, some of your translations may have something like little children or dear children. Supposedly this term that he uses as an informal or affectionate word for children. So he refers to the disciple in a term that would be a close affectionate term. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. And remember, the people he's talking to are all Jews. He's a Jew, so when he says the Jews, he's referring to the Jewish leadership. And there's a passage earlier where he told them he was going to go somewhere they couldn't go, and that confused them. So here's the bad news. There's going to be a separation Jesus is about to do something, go somewhere they can't go. And so in light of that, before he leaves, he gives them a new command. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So Jesus says this is a new command. Um, which is interesting because if you look at the Old Testament closely, the idea of love is certainly commanded in the Old Testament. For example, people are told you must love your God with all your heart. You must also love your neighbor. So the idea of love is in the Old Testament. Why does Jesus say this is new? I think it's new in a couple respects. Uh, one is the command is given by Jesus, not Moses. So remember, the, those, the law is given through Moses. He is the spokesperson for God who delivers the law to the Israelites. When they make a covenant with the Lord, with Moses as the mediator at Sinai. And so now Jesus is replacing Moses with himself as the mediator of this command. So that's one new aspect of it. But another new aspect is Jesus can say, as I have loved you. 
So I think that dramatically increases the stakes of the command. If you think about, for example, the Old Testament, love your neighbor as yourself, it's easy to water that down. Hey, I'm a pretty low-maintenance guy. That means my neighbor wants to be low-maintenance. I can define how I love my neighbor by how I want to be loved, right? If I have to love my neighbor as Jesus loved me, ooh, that's a high standard. Because how did Jesus love me? He was willing to die for me a painful death so that I could have a relationship with God. And think about that. That even takes out the ability to say, well, this neighbor's pretty annoying. So I'd really like to spend more time loving the other neighbor that's very nice, right? No, you have to love your neighbor as Jesus loved you, and Jesus loved you while you were pretty annoying and unholy. And he helped you overcome those things. So I think it's a new command with a much stronger, unavoidable obligation attached to it because it comes from Jesus who does more for us than Moses could have ever done for the Israelites, right? And the other gospels make clear that this is really the inauguration of the new covenant predicted by Jeremiah and others in the Old Testament. John doesn't say that expressly, but I think what he does as he shows it, he shows the relational aspect of covenants. So if you think about the Old Testament concept of covenant, it was the formal recognition of a practical relationship. And what the scholars say the covenants of the Old Testament mimic is typically the relationship between a king or a ruler of some title and his people. And it was usually the formal recognition that the leader would provide these benefits to the people, generally safety, protection, I will create an environment where you can thrive and exchange the people, give their loyalty and their service um, to the ruler. And a covenant was the formal recognition of that relationship. And what John shows us as the relational aspects of that, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, explaining to them that he is going to provide a means for relationship with God for them. And then the other Gospels provide the formal acknowledgement of that where he actually breaks the bread and the wine and explains this is the inauguration of the new covenant in my blood, right? So I think that's just the formal recognition of what John shows us. I think John would very much agree what's going on here is the new inauguration of a people who are distinctly recognized by their attachment to Jesus, even beyond any sort of relationship with the nation of Israel. And I don't think he's tossing Israel onto the theological scrap heap. I still think if you're a Jew, that matters. But there is a new community where whether you're Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. What really matters is your attachment to Jesus. 
And the way you should know whether someone's part of that community is the way they treat other believers. So we should be a community that displays love in a way that is such a higher level than other communities around the world that people can look at us and say, look, those are those crazy followers of Jesus. We don't like everything they do, but we have to admit the way they love each other is pretty impressive. Pretty high bar. All right, questions, comments, concerns about that so far? Yeah, and that's really what makes the new covenant more powerful than the old covenant, is that the new covenant is accompanied by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that empowers you in a new way, and empowers all believers in a new way to actually accomplish the commands. One other bit of trivia before we move on is um, most of you who've been here in this church for years know that Every Thursday before Easter, we have a Maundy Thursday service. And have you ever thought Maundy is a really weird word? Why do we call it Maundy Thursday? Supposedly, that comes from the Latin for mandate, which essentially means commandment. So what we're commemorating is this new command. So when we talk about Maundy Thursday, that was based on the recognition of the importance of this statement that we just went over. So one of the things you're commemorating in that service is this moment that we just studied. All right. So let's, yeah. Could part of this too be because, like, with the Pharisees, they had bogged everyone down so much with rules that they forgot to love their neighbor? Like, that didn't take as much importance as following all these rules and making sure you don't do this and do that. So I think there's definitely truth to that. Um, So, like, if you think about the exchange Jesus has with one of the Pharisees, or I I can't remember which sect of the religious leadership he's with, about what the greatest commandment is, the guy knows the right answer. He immediately says the essence of the law is love God and love your neighbor, But then he comes back and says, but who is my neighbor? And so I think, and I don't, I think the Pharisees are just representative of human nature here. Human nature is to water down any rule. And as soon as you get the rule, to think of ways to make it easy to comply with, to essentially make it sanction, approve the behavior you want to engage in. And so I do think when Jesus shows up on the scene, There's been hundreds of years of making the commands of the Old Testament easy for the leaders in particular to comply with and make 
the make things work the way they wanted to work. Like one of the examples we've talked about in the gospel is that they have these really strict interpretations of the Sabbath that they didn't like the way Jesus viewed the Sabbath. One of their workarounds was like, you were only supposed to walk a short distance, but if you had servants who'd set up a little booth for you and you rested, you could then walk another short distance. And before you know it, you've completely circumvented the command. And there are all sorts of workarounds so that the law is really working for them rather than them conforming to the spirit of the law. So I think that's true. And that's part of the conflict they have with Jesus is Jesus shows up and says in things like the Sermon on the Mount, no, you guys actually fall way short. And I I would say the big spiritual problem with bending any rule to what you want to do is that you you end up in a place where you say there's nothing wrong with me. I don't need to change. And Jesus' argument is the purpose of the commandments was to show you that you need grace so that you appeal to God for the forgiveness and grace that you need. If you just drag the standard down where you are, you end up thinking, I don't need grace. And I think you see that attitude from some of the leaders that Jesus interacts with. And we do it today. I was in a meeting on Friday where we were talking about this program that I'm part of and the metrics, and one other person joked about how, well, he just likes to redefine the metrics, so what he's doing now is an A+, right? We, we all have a tendency to do that. And so part of helping each other is say, no, here's the ideal. And we, of all people, should be willing to, meet, be, to admit we fall short of the ideal because we know there's grace for that gap. And so it's okay to admit you fall short of the ideal because God provides the grace to make up that gap for you. So we shouldn't fear the gap. All right. So the disciples, though, kind of skip over the command and focus on the statement, where I'm going, you cannot come. So Simon Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. And that must have been annoying, because it's like, now you're talking in riddles. Why not just tell me where you're going? Why are you describing it this goofy way? You can follow, you can't follow now, but you will follow later. So Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. So makes a big statement there. I will lay down my life for you. I think the way events play out, Peter's probably not imagining himself literally dying. What he's probably imagining himself is facing great danger and Jesus punching the turbo button or whatever and blasting through it. And so... I think he's still got in his mind this is going to end in some sort of great supernatural victory. He's willing to go anywhere with Jesus, face any danger to make that happen. I don't think he's really thinking, no, um, Jesus is going to get arrested, everyone's going to turn on me, and it's going to feel like I'm really going to die. So when push comes to shove, he's not going to be able to do this now. 
Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So you'll get three opportunities. Um, And it won't even be clear that the people are going to arrest you and crucify you too at that point. You're just going to face a threat, and you're going to wilt three times. And one, this shows us that Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen between now and his crucifixion. So again, he's in control. He's choosing for everything to play out the way it does. This also becomes important in Peter's life. We're going to see the difference in Peter as the New Testament plays out pre-empowering of the Holy Spirit, post-empowering of the Holy Spirit. Because one of the traditions about Peter is that eventually he does get crucified, and supposedly when the moment comes at the end of his life, we think sometime in the 60s, he says um, that he doesn't even deserve to be crucified normally, so he asked them to crucify him upside down. And supposedly he dies by being crucified upside down because he says, I'm not worthy to die like Jesus died. So Peter gets there um, in a way that's pretty amazing, but he wasn't ready at that point. Jesus knows it. um, So he lets him know this, and there's going to be more about that in the Gospel of John. But the larger point is that none of the disciples can follow him because it's not really a physical journey. Jesus is going to spell that out in chapter 14. But first, he tries to be encouraging. So 14.1, do not let your hearts be be troubled, which usually means he can see that they're troubled by the prospect of him being gone. So first, he says the negative, don't be troubled, Then he says, here's what you do so that you won't be troubled. Because if you tell someone not to think about something, you kind of need to give them something positive to focus on. Otherwise, it's pretty darn near impossible not to think about something. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There's a big debate about how to interpret that phrase. Um, does is is it should it be translated as commands or exhortations, which is what the NIV has done? Trust in God, as in trust in God the Father, also trust in me. Or is it more along the lines of you have trusted in God the Father, now you should trust in me. It's kind of, in some ways, an academic debate. Either way, it's really Trinitarian, and it's saying, right alongside God the Father, have me as an object of your faith. Okay? And this is something none of the disciples are expecting the Messiah to say. Um, They aren't expecting the doctrine of the Trinity to come down the pike. And so when Jesus starts saying stuff like, you can think of me as an object of faith right alongside God the Father, that's going to blow them away, right? That's going to sound like blasphemy. So we'll come back to that idea a little later on. He then says, in my Father's house are many rooms. 
meaning permanent dwelling places, places where you can abide forever, where you can remain forever. And remember that language because we're going to come back to that concept of abiding or remaining. So these are permanent places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. So let's pause there. There's some debate about what Jesus means when he says, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. There's some people that argue that means he's going off to build the rooms. He was a carpenter, so maybe. Um, But that's a minority view. Uh, The majority view, and I think the majority's got this right, is that prepare a place essentially means I'm going to provide the access for you to those dwelling places in heaven. So the imagery is heaven has all these rooms. You can't get there now. He's just told the disciples, I'm about to go there. You can't go there now. So what Jesus is doing is going there to provide the access to the rooms. So if you want to make the imagery concrete, he's going to unlock the doors and put a mint on the pillow for you. So there are these rooms, they were locked, but when Jesus gets there, now they're ready for you, they're waiting for you. There's a heavenly welcome awaiting for you because of Jesus. All right? And Jesus says, and if I go there and make the effort to do that, then surely I will come back for you and make sure you get there. So it probably feels lonely to the disciples to be left in the world without their leader. Jesus is saying, don't worry, it's for your benefit I'm going away, because if I don't go away, I can't make the path to heaven for you. But don't lose heart, because if I go away, I will come back for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So everyone agrees the promise is he will get the disciples to heaven. So if he goes away, they can count on him to come back and get them to heaven. The details, there's a lot of argument about. In what sense does Jesus come back and take them to be where he is? So one viewpoint out there is... When he says come back, he's talking about his presence through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which he's about to talk about more in this same conversation with him about how once he gets to heaven, that prompts God the Father to unleash the gift of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He's going to talk about how the Holy Spirit through the Trinity represents his presence, spiritual presence with believers. So some people argue He's coming back through the Holy Spirit. And they're right that he's coming back with the Holy Spirit through the Holy Spirit. But other people say that's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is his second coming at the end of the age where the resurrection happens. Okay? And so go back with me to John 5. Because I think this passage provides a lot of context for what's going on in the farewell discourse. So at 521, 
Jesus said, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. And then a little further down at 25, I tell you the truth, a time is coming and is now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has granted life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. So remember Daniel 7, got authority, that's this. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who, will do, who have done evil will rise to be condemned. So the majority viewpoint is Jesus is talking about this when he says, I will come back and receive you to myself. And it's because Jesus dies on the cross and goes to heaven and God the Father accepts his sacrifice to provide justification for us that we don't have to fear this moment. If the grace of Jesus has been applied to you, this resurrection is a happy moment. If the grace of Jesus has not been applied to you, this is a bad moment. This is when you find out your eternal fate and it's not good on your own merits. That's what Christianity believes. All right, questions, comments, concerns about that? Yep. Yep. And so that transitions us into the next passage, which is going to spell out what you just said. So Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? So Thomas is not encouraged yet. They're still stuck on this idea Jesus is going somewhere and he's told us we can't follow him. Um, We still haven't figured out what he's talking about. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So this is where Jesus makes it clear. This is another one of those instances where he's trying to communicate a spiritual truth through concrete imagery. And so he's not literally going to walk to heaven. This is a spiritual journey, not a physical journey. That's why the disciples can't follow it now. Contra Led Zeppelin, there's not a stairway to heaven. Jesus is going to walk up. And if you could just find the right stairway, you could follow him to heaven, right? The answer is Jesus is the way. So imagine there is this unbridgeable chasm between fallen humanity and holy God. Jesus says, I am the stairway across that chasm. I am the truth that reveals that path to you. And I am the life. I am the source of life that survives death. 
That's a theme he's talked about throughout the Gospel of John. I will give you life that survives death, implying that his followers do go through a physical death, but that's not the end of their existence because he gives them life that overcomes death. And Jesus says, I'm all that and nothing else is. And this is one of the verses that forces Christians as a logical matter to say, we can't agree with universalism. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And so he says, the only way to bridge that chasm is if God the Father applies the grace that I provide to you. And as we've talked about um, in other classes, I think there's wiggle room at the edges to say, we don't control who God the Father applies that grace to, If God the Father wants to apply that grace to someone who literally can't choose whether to believe in Jesus or not, imagine a stillborn baby. I can't tell God the Father not to do that. Uh, But what I think scripture makes it um, logically impossible to avoid is if you have someone like Judas who encounters the light and chooses to walk back into the night, there's no hope for him. I don't think scripture leaves any hope for someone who can believe, who knows what to believe, and walks away. And so that forces Christians into a position that's definitely not popular in our society today. Um, That's why we can't say, no, it's okay. If you say you're a Buddhist or you say an atheist, that's just fine. It'll all work out in the end. We're all on the same mountaintop. We're all on the same mountain. Someday we'll all get to the same mountaintop and realize we never should have disagreed with each other. That kind of stuff are things I think this scripture does not allow us to say. Questions, comments, concerns about that? All right. So now they know Jesus is the way. All right. That's how they're going to get there. It's not by finding a particular road out of town. It's by knowing a particular person. And if I could use one cheesy analogy here, um, I'm 55, about to be 56. I remember when directions were a thing. Like if I wanted to go to my friend Johnny's house, my mom wanted to know the directions to how to get there, right? Now, no, I don't, most of you probably haven't asked for directions in ages. Why? Because you have a cell phone. So you say, text me the address. You don't bother with the directions because you have a cell phone. What Jesus is saying is, I am the cell phone. You don't need directions because you've got me. If you have me, you have the way to heaven. What you need is a relationship, not a list of directions not a road. You need a relationship, okay? Jesus is the Zalvo. All right. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And I think what's going on here, in order to give Philip some slack, is remember, Philip has hugely invested in Jesus. He's left whatever career path he was planning to do He's followed Jesus around for three years, even though everyone important in his society is saying Jesus is no good. And so he believes a lot of good things about Jesus. But one thing that wouldn't have been on his radar screen is all the stuff Jesus is saying now about how 
I'm, you can look at me as an object of your faith. I and the Father are one. None of that was part of the basic Jewish ideas of the Messiah. So he says, all right, if you want me to believe this, just show me one more sign. Open a portal to heaven where you say you're going to go. Show us a vision of God the Father. That sign would be enough for me. All right? It's a logical request. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So in other words, I've been showing you the Father for the past three years. As you walked with me, you saw the Father's attributes in action. You heard the words that the Father wanted to be said. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. So Jesus' answer is first, just think about what you've experienced the past three years. And have you seen the attributes you believe God has in action through me? Have you heard words that you believe are revelation from God the Father through me? And the ideal would be if that were enough. But if that's not enough, have you not seen sign after sign suggesting that God approves my actions and approves my words? And so put those things together and believe these claims that you weren't expecting. So in other words, you should have seen enough uh, signs already. And it's kind of interesting that Jesus expresses this sadness or disappointment that Philip hasn't figured that out already. Um, in part because Jesus has to know exactly where Philip is, and so he can't be surprised by that. But I think what this shows us is that even though Jesus and God the Father know exactly where humanity is, including Philip, experiencing creation and humanity and even the disciples' difficulty in recognizing God, their creator, in their presence and what he's doing for them is a painful experience for God. So John says at the beginning, um, we'll go back to one, John 1. We'll look at it together. So in the introduction... John says, with the benefit of hindsight, Jesus, the word, was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Moreover, he came to that which was his own, meaning the people of Israel, that God the Father has sustained through generations of trials and tribulations. And his own did not receive him, meaning the majority of Israelites even did not recognize him. It's just a remnant, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, 
He gave the right to become children of God. And so I think what we see in 14 is that it's painful for God, the creator, to come to his creation and not be recognized by it. He can experience sadness, even though in some sense this is exactly what he decreed and it's exactly what he knows is going to happen. And in some sense, he's even in control of it. It's a pretty complex picture of God. All right. Comments, concerns about that? All right. Let's keep going. Then he says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. So there's some things everyone agrees about this verse. One is that what Jesus says here is going to happen because he's going to the Father. So this is another good reason why Jesus has to leave the disciples and go to the Father. And one of the things that's going to do is it's going to enable his followers to do even greater things than the works Jesus has done. Where there's huge disagreement is, in what sense did Jesus' followers do things even greater than what Jesus does? If you think about some of the miracles Jesus does, they're pretty spectacular. Raising Lazarus from the dead feeding 5,000 people, calming the storm. Most commentators agree Jesus doesn't mean you will do more spectacular miracles than me. So one solution is to say quantity is the answer. There's a famous general, it may have been Napoleon, who said quantity is its own quality when you're talking about armies. Uh, So even if the troops aren't that great, if you have enough of them, that's worth something. Um, And if you follow Acts and think about all the miracles that are done in Acts and throughout church history, maybe that adds up to more than Jesus did during the three years of his ministry. If you add up the number of believers, that's way more than the number of believers on earth when Jesus goes back to the Father. Maybe the answer is quantity. That's one solution. Another solution focuses on content and timing. So one thing that happens during Jesus' ministry is he hints that he is going to die and go back to the Father. He doesn't talk about that explicitly. He doesn't talk very often about the fact that there is a trinity and he is not only Israel's Messiah, but he is both human and God, um, that gets talked about more after he dies and goes back to heaven. So, for example, flip over to Acts 3. So here we see one of the miracles that happens right after Jesus goes back to be with the Father. At 3.6, Peter tells a becker who's lame, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. 
Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. And then look at his explanation. Go down to verse 12. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. So there's another group that argues, after Jesus, the content of the message grows. We can now say, look, Jesus died, he went back to heaven, he provides forgiveness. It is a fuller explanation of God's salvific plan than we were able to make before Jesus did those things. So the significance of the sign grows because you can provide that fuller explanation so that what's greater is the content. And they kind of point back to the verse in Matthew where Jesus says, John the Baptist, really great prophet, no one greater than him in the Old Testament paradigm, but even the most average schmo in the kingdom of God is greater than that not because he's more spiritual or has more faith than John the Baptist, but because he lives in a more advanced stage of God's salvific program. So the other possibility is it's greater in the sense of there's been an advancement in God's salvific program that we're now able to talk about that even Jesus didn't talk about much during his own ministry. And of course, It's Jesus that makes that all possible. It's Jesus' spirit working through the church. So in Acts 9, Jesus is going to tell Paul, you're persecuting me. So it's not like people are doing this and Jesus isn't involved. It's Jesus continuing to work out his program through his followers. All right, questions, comments, concerns about that? All right, let's cover one last little concept. So charge back to John, because it's related. This will be the final thing. So then Jesus says, And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. And the big problem with that is that sounds too good to be true. Um, Most believers have had the experience of asking God for something that didn't happen. In fact, maybe the opposite of what you asked for happened. So what does this mean? Um, Jesus is saying, I'm going there to be an advocate for you. I think the key to the answer is he says, I will do whatever you ask in my name. And then the purpose, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. 
So in my name means on my authority, something I would authorize you to do. So, for example, when we looked at that miracle, Peter said, I did that on the authority of Jesus. Jesus wanted you to be healed. That's why you were healed. It wasn't because Peter wanted you to be healed. It was because Jesus wanted you to be healed. So what Jesus is promising is whatever is consistent with his authority and his will and whatever brings glory to God the Father, he will do for you. We are often surprised by what that includes and what it doesn't include, right? There are often a lot of things we wish it included that it doesn't. And the rest of the New Testament makes clear it may include suffering. Even Paul had something that he viewed as an affliction that God did not remove from his life. But if you go back and read the Gospel of John, There are all kinds of wonderful things that Jesus has made clear are absolutely part of that. And so you can look forward to that. So, for example, in John 5, he promised that he's going to raise you up and you're going to spend eternity with him and God the Father. If you look at John 11, 25 and 26... He says, I am the resurrection of life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. So yes, you may have to go through a painful death, but he promises you will survive that death and have eternal life. At 12.26, whoever serves me must follow me. Where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Someday, God the Father will honor you. That's part of his will. That's something he is going to do. You don't have to worry about that. 14, 2, and 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm preparing a place for you. There's a place for you in heaven waiting for you. Wherever Jesus is, there you will be. And on and on and on. Um, So, we, th- we may not get there the way we want to. There may be twists and turns on the way, uh, but Jesus is promising to see you to heaven. And whatever is consistent with God's will, he will do for you. All right, let's pause there, and we'll gather again next week, God willing.